This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. Coming up in this week's show, we talk about the right place to put your mic in your booth. We mention the Yellow Tech Puck, what's the best microphone for event recording, also front-end processing. And our guest this week, talking union, agents, and online casting, is Tom Deere. Now, I did a session uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I spoke to Robbo about this. It, I do a lot of live event stuff, pre-records for live events. Um, and based on the, uh, the, the monitoring inside the auditorium, what would be the best microphone to use? And this is something Rob and I discussed. What, what do you think, George and Robert? Well, I, I, used to, um, I used to do these, actually, corporate conventions and those types of things, essentially. Yeah. If anything, you really want to have a totally dead room, for sure, because... The, the room put through the room will sound even more roomy. So the more you can make it dead, you're going to have more of that voice of God kind of sound. And that's kind of what you're going for in these things. Yeah. So um, I would imagine, you know, just nice and close to the mic, very dead room, pretty much played the way most broadcast things are played. And then hopefully the uh, people running the live sound are able to just kind of tune it for the room. I'd imagine that there's going to be EQ that is necessary on site that you can't really predict for. They might be rolling off some bass. They probably have a system with subwoofers and everything else. Um, so that would be my guess. George? I definitely wouldn't have a lot of bottom end in it. I mean, I de- you would not want a voice recording with a nice 80 hertz resonance in the, in the chest. That could be really problematic if the playback system can't handle it. And if the engineer playing it back doesn't properly handle it. Right, and the playback system probably is going to have subwoofers because these places are they're playing music and there's a certain amount of hype at them. I mean, not to bring it tangent, but I, I we we did some show opens and this one CEO every year he came on stage in some insane way. So one year, and these are big theaters, right? You know, five thousand people in a theater. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This guy ziplined in from the top of the theater down to the stage one time. <laughs> Another time he rode a horse in on stage. Nice. Every time it was like some insanely big entrance, you know, and so there is a lot of theatrics going on and they've got subwoofers and yeah. So I would agree. Like you're not going to be able to predict what the EQ is and you want to give it pretty flat and definitely not hyped up on either end of the spectrum. Because we discussed microphones and Robbo, we, um, we said it would be better to use something like a 416 or 416. Mm-hmm. In fact, I might even start calling them 416s. <laughs> because just to be different <laughs> yeah because uh, it's 416 in the US it's 416 here so 416 oh. I'll call it 416 in honor of you guys lovely um, 416 yeah. I think that's a brilliant mic to use and I, and I know a lot of folks who do live show announces for like Oscars and such and that is seems to be the mic of choice I mean certainly in LA and here in Los Angeles that's what they're going to be put on more often than not they're also stuck in some crappy little closet half the time for announcing these shows. Yeah. You'd be amazed what they stick the voice actors through for something with such high profile. But yeah, I think you're right about the, you know, for really big budget. I mean, they're huge budgets for doing corporate events like this. Yeah. They go berserk with video projection and everything. And, you know, you can pretty much count on the fact that they've got a good engineer. So give them something nice and clean without any hype 
um, and let them season to taste, I would think. Let them handle it the way, the same way you'd send out a, a file to a good production studio that has good engineers and knows how to mix. I would think of it the same way, I suppose. The, the thing about choosing the right microphone is also kind of understanding the gear that you have. And this is another thing we discussed the other day. I've got compressors here and I've realized I don't actually understand really how compressors, I know what they do, but I, I look at the dials and go, I wonder if, what happens if I flick that one? I wonder if I press that button. So I've decided it's probably best that I turn them off. I personally think whenever, like, if, if I'm the remote studio or if I'm recording with another, like, really professional remote studio, usually it is just mic down the line. That's it. Mic and mic pre. Yeah. And let the other guy do everything. And I honestly am not a fan. I mean, even the gating. I mean, the only reason to gate is because you don't want to admit that you've got the noise. Which you'll normally hear in the background of the read about. anyway. Yeah. Right. But it's like, I, I think every engineer would rather have it just raw and then they can handle it as they see fit. And then you have all options on the table. If not, you're just basically cornered. Um, especially gating is something that you really got to handle carefully because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's on, if, if you print it and that's what you send down the line, that's what you got. It's mm. destructive. Change it. Well, see, yeah. even, even for me, I mean, I, I've got a, a Droma 1960, which I use as a mic pre for the very minimal amount of times I record here, but my wife does voiceovers. Normally she'll record herself. And when she's doing that, I just plug her straight into the back of Pro Tools and, you know, away she goes. But if I'm running the session, I'll use the, the drama as the pre. But I, I, I still turn all the compression and everything off. I just, you know, just sounds a little bit nicer going through the tube. So, um, so I'll do that. But I, even I don't touch it going out if I'm sending it to someone else. I mean, I, I've taken this approach even more so. And I know a lot of music guys are all about sort of printing with color and, you know, that's what the UA stuff is all about. And and I can kind of understand that with, I guess, with an emulated mic pre. But ever since, to me, 24-bit um, and really good converters, it's like, do it all later. I mean, so I've, I've been just recording mics to Pro Tools. When it was two-inch tape... And then, then you had a reason, you know, maybe you're going to boost the EQs going in because you know you're going to lose some later and you're going to, um, you know, kind of try to deal with it in a different way because you're dealing with a lossy system. But 24-bit audio, I don't know if people realize this, when you compare 24-bit to 16-bit, you could record 24-bit at minus 48, I mean, right, yeah. off the meter practically, and have the same resolution as 16-bit. Now that's not saying that your, I mean, twenty-four bit exceeds usually exceeds the the noise floor of your mic pre, by far. Always. And yeah. so, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, but the point is, you've got so much headroom. There's no need to commit all this stuff. You can really do it all later, and it's going to be the same result. You're just going to have options up until the very end. Because I know George, you you do set up studios for voiceover people in in their. Um project studios um and you set up eq and compression for them don't you i do i do and i know it's it can be controversial among engineers but the sad state of affairs is you know there's a heck of a lot of work going on out there in the voiceover world that never graces the uh console of a good engineer or yeah. an engineer at all which is really a shame that that's where it makes sense how do you get around different reads with that though, George, like if, if, if I'm close mic'd and, and speaking with an authoritative voice, which is a bit more projection, as opposed to standing back doing 
a different type of read. How do you compensate for thresholds and all that sort of stuff with, e- with compression if you're, if you're sort of doing a set and forget? That's a really good question. So, like, you know, it's, that's where we talk about front-end versus back-end processing. Mm. Um, it's very hard to do a set and forget on front-end processing. You, yeah. you, well, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right. If you're using anything with dynamics, compression or downward expansion or anything, you cannot set and forget the preamp gain. It's mm. got to be right. It's as though you monkey around with the thresholds on all of these processors when the line level or the level coming in is not correct. Mm. So you can really can't. So mm. I, I don't do a lot of front-end processing for people unless they are very seasoned voice actors. They know really know what they're doing. They've got years of experience and they know what it is that the client is wanting. And they, they you know, everybody knows what their job is. And they know what the expectations are, um, you know, and it, uh, it, these things often end up being part of the, the workflow for people doing, um, uh, what do you call it? In-show announces and affiliates and promo where timeframes, you know, production turnarounds very, very fast. And that, that's where I see it happening. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, we, you know, we, we're going to record you. We, we're, we have 15 minutes to get this off to edit or to post and we have to do it. And so you, if you're giving them something they can work with very quickly in post or, you know, we're still, if there's nobody in post that's doing audio, it's just an avid <laughs> editor and they take your track and they drop it into a timeline with the music and <laughs> good luck then the, the talent really has to do something. Because I've had clients many times tell me, man, I heard my spot on the local affiliate network and it was awful. The mix was terrible. I was buried in the mix. Mm, it's because no one mixed so, it. <laughs> yeah, but to answer your question, because I really haven't yet, this is why post-processing is far, far better for voice actors because I do co- use copious amounts of, dare I say it, normalizing to help uh, pre prep the audio levels before it goes into the processing. So, you know, I have them try to get a good recording level, you know, try to hit between plus minus 12 and minus six, something in that range. I'm not going to be there to babysit them. So, you know, after they record and before they drop in their processing, I have them normalize it to minus three and then I have them apply the processing. Does that always work out? Well, maybe not, not especially if they're doing something with extreme amount of dynamic range. So, if they, if they hit the mic real hard on something and then they're real soft somewhere else and they have spikes in the audio, it's not going to work quite as well. So, you know, I tell them, like, you have to try at the end of the year, at the end of the day, you have to trust your ears. If you run this through the processing and it sounds worse to you, it's probably going to sound worse to everybody else. <laughs> yeah. So turn it off. Yeah. If they're printing, and I, I know the UA can't quite do this, the UA is either it prints or it doesn't, but do you have them ever... Um, print one clean in one process. So if there's ever any a, a need to go back, but I'd imagine um, it's a good idea to you know print both, like print the clean, and then if you want to print the processed, you can. And I've seen many setups, for example, where you have a mixer and you can just unmute the right channel. Um, with the one thing about those setups is never send two channels at the same time. If not, you sound all phasey. But right. then you can be like, what do you want processed? Here it is. Oh, you want it clean? Here it is. Um, right. And I, you know, it's like, I, I, I see the workflow main, mainly being promos needing that maybe some radio stuff, but in general, I always have a less is more attitude about it. Yeah. When I, when I started doing this kind of work, this kind of front end processing method, I, I, anybody using pro tools or anything multi-track, then I definitely would malt or, or have a bus and I'd have a, a dry bus and a wet bus 
So I'd have a dry track that was direct off the preamp and I'd have a track that was going through a chain of processors. And um, I'd say to the client, well, you can group these two tracks together and you can edit them together. And then when you're finished, the client, let the client decide. You don't need to do that every time. Maybe the very, very first time you work with that client, once they, once you've established a, you know, an ongoing relationship and you get to work with them over and over, you don't have to keep doing that. Um, but yeah. you know, right out of the gate, if you don't, if you have no idea what they're looking for and they don't know what they want, giving, having it both ways is actually, is, is a huge advantage. Um, in, in that's when you're tracking through the processing front end, um, in something like uh, just an editor, like twisted wave, which I like a lot, um, you know, then you keep versions. So you have a dry, dry version and then you have your processed or mastered version and then you have them both stored on your system and wave file. And then you're always covering yourself. So um, when, that's one, kinda... one thing we always did when we would, so like, you know, we're recording a voiceover and back in the day when we'd run a DAT backup, yep. remember that? Because Pro Tools <laughs> so we would, all the time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you mean, back in and the day? And what we would do, yeah. yeah, what do you mean? Like, it still crashes. All, no, uh, actually, 64-bit version of Pro Tools is much more Much stable. better. But what we would do is, and, and this is also what they do live on sets and things, is you, you run that mic and you split it stereo. And then you run one of them probably 10 decibels lower than the other. And that way, if there's ever a clip, you got it on the other channel on that lower channel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Clever. That's the safety, the safety, safety uh, margin thing. Mm. That's, Mm -hmm. that's another great thing. And then I'll go one more tangent because I I love tangents. Yellow tech German company has a mic preamp interface that has the most unbelievable intelligent gain processing thing I have ever seen. It, It is listening to you and in milliseconds, it's actually able to adjust the gain on the preamp in the circuit and, and compensate for swings and dynamics so seamlessly. It's kind of mind-boggling. And it doesn't sound anything like a compander or not a compander, but a AGC, you know, horrible automatic gain mm. <laughs> control. Mm. It doesn't sound anything like it. It's, it is absolutely remarkable. Check out the Yellowtech. Um, oh, darn it. I can't think of the name. The Puck? Is it the Puck? The Puck. The Puck yeah, Mike right. something or other. P-U-C, Mike something or other. I covered it at NAB, I think, last year on my vlog, one of my vlogs, and it, it is quite amazing. And you can even set the parameters. Say, I, I don't want it to adjust more than 10 dB or 15 dB. Don't go too berserk. Um, it's, it sounds it's, like a compressor, like a really intelligent compressor, like a super, good one. super fast, intelligent compressor. It sounds a bit like doing with gain what vocal rider does with level then, which we, we talked about yeah, vocal rider the other week. Um, yeah, that's right. It's like vocal rider, but at the preamp stage. Yeah. Right. Wow. There's and also the Apex. Apex has a thing called mic limb, which is supposed to catch the clipping before it actually clips the mic pre at all. Um, I'm not sure how it works, but it's it's like a very interesting sort of soft limit type of approach. But it's not after the AD; it is it's at the mic preamp, so it's before the A to D converter, and it's like a limiter thing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally familiar with it, but it seems pretty interesting and one of those patented special sauce kind of things that Apex yeah. has. I know we tangent um, a lot there, but yeah, it's it's um, you can't really set and forget front end processing, kids. Don't do it. Yeah. 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 And I'll say one other thing. The the biggest processing or one of the biggest things, you know, is mic technique. 
you know, and, and when you're loud and, and just pulling back off that mic a few inches, you can you can have a lot of effect and the tonal, the you know, getting close to the mic and working the proximity effect for the right read at the right, you know, moment in time. And those kinds of things, I think, uh, is also very often overlooked as a legitimate way of, you know, thinking of processing. It's almost yeah. becoming a bit forgotten too, isn't it, I think? Or sort of a bit of an art that's getting lost um, is, you know, vocal well, uh, microphone I, yeah, awareness. I think a part of it's the problem is these, is, is these small studios. Mm. When you're in a really small room in a personal studio, if you back away from the mic, it sounds bad really fast. Yeah. Um, because of those early reflections, because of the room is so small, the distance between you, the mic, and the next wall next to you becomes closer and closer to being a one-to-one ratio. Yes. So when it's, yeah. when the wall is the same distance between, it's the same difference between you and the mic as it is between you and the wall and the mic and the wall, you got to bet it's going to sound terrible. And so, you know, you we don't have the luxury of being able to do something as natural as backing away from the mic very far. When you're really close to the mic, the very small, very small adjustments make a really big difference. So like Robert said, you may only back away two inches, but that two inches can sound quite different. So, right, because you know, like, what's what's that rule? It's the uh, root inverse two square. over two inverse square yeah, law. Inverse square right? Yep. So with the inverse uh, square, really are we talking about the uh, the di- the the front of the microphone being closer to the wall behind you than the wall in front of you? Inverse square law is just about basically a rule of sound, right, Robert? Like as the distance between the source and the and the and the destination increases, the sound the volume changes by an exponentially. Inverse square. Yeah. It's exponentially right. so, like you, I mean, every time linear. you get twice as far away, you're four times lower in volume. So you can really move a little bit on the mic and you get a profound difference in, in uh, power at least. Yeah. And then, right. And but the closer with, to the mic you are, the more critical those changes are. Yeah. So when you're really close to the mic, a very small movement is quite audible. So the people that work in their personal studios, they have it the, they have it the toughest by a long shot. Not only are they having to self-engineer, get their levels right. They have to learn how to use proper mic technique and they have a much smaller space in which to work, a smaller envelope. They can't make as much big gestures and movement. Um, it's very hard. And we're putting voice actors in a, in a challenging scenario and making them, you know, fulfill client need without an engineer. So, you know, it's been hard. It's harder now to be a voice actor for sure. Cause you have to know how to do all that stuff. I agree. You're approaching being an engineer. And and that's why, you know, you, you try to keep all that in mind and then also don't do what you don't have to do, essentially, I think. Or back to the first question, don't do what you don't understand. All right. Less is more. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. If in doubt, turn it off. Bypass it. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, let's um, jump to our interview for this week. And uh, it is the one and only Tom Deere. Well, now it's Deere for anyone that doesn't know with an H-E-E-R-E, D-H-E-E-R-E. Because after this right. interview, everybody will be searching your name because they're going to want to do sessions with you. Exactly. Oh, well, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it would be lovely. <laughs> yes, very. It, so you are obviously a voice talent. How long have you been in voiceover? I did my first voiceover in 1996. It was a uh, public service announcement for genital herpes awareness. <laughs> Good stuff. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Herpes. Don't let it rock your world. Get the facts. Oh. <laughs> Don't get it, get the facts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, you should have seen the audition. Uh, so that was my first voiceover, and I went full-time in 2005. So I've been a full-time uh, narrator for, I guess this would be my 12th or 13th year full-time. Nice. So you're one of the few people that got their break in voiceover via herpes. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so but, what, what, what inspired you to cross the line and become more of a teacher? Um, I've been doing this for a long time, and I spent the first almost 15 of the 20-plus years I've been doing this trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing. And I found out that one of the biggest problems that we as voice talents have, aspiring voice talents, is that we don't know how to think about what we're supposed to think about. Our mentality is that of an employee, a starving artist, and American culture, at least, I, I can't speak for Australian culture, basically says that if you're not a star, you're a loser. Yes. And, and no one talks about the practical aspects of becoming a successful voice talent, which is you need to have business acumen, you need to have self-discipline, you need to make good choices, you need to understand how the industry works, how money works. And also when I started, there was really no in, much of an internet to speak of. So I basically had a demo in a dream and, you know, faffed about, as you would say. Yeah. Um, so once I kind of figured out what I need to do to be an effective voiceover business, which is if I want to be a successful voiceover artist inside the booth, I need to be an effective voiceover business outside the booth. And couple that with all the years of corporate training that I have done, specifically for restaurants. I used to travel the country and other countries um, training people to open restaurants. Put that together, plus my voiceover experience and all the business acumen that I've developed. Um, I wanted to start giving back to a community that has been so kind to me. I say that specifically because I do analytics on my voiceover business every year. In 2017, 2% of my work came from agents. 59% of my work came from referrals from fellow voice talents. Wow. So who, what's more important to me? An agent who says, oh, I'm going to make you a star or the so-called competition that I'm supposed to be clawing and fighting my way past to become, you know, a star, whatever the hell that means. So becoming a voiceover business and marketing consultant, which is what I like to call myself, the VO strategist, is basically karmic penance. And I also want to spare everybody all the garbage that I went through. <laughs> Yeah. making my way through the uh, voiceover industry. What sort of clients do you have for your business? I, I mean, you cover everything from lodging your taxes all the way through to voice, voice booth etiquette. Um, what sort of people are looking for your services? Everybody. It's funny. I get a lot of new people who are new to the industry and want to, you know, figure things out. But I also get a lot of veteran voice talents uh, for, for two basic reasons. One, because the industry changes a lot and they need to adapt. And two, they may want to try, based on their voice or their, their methods or their practices, that they're just not getting the, the, the work that they used to. Mm. So they come to me to try to figure out what's going on in their world, what's going on in their head, what's going on in their business model, and try to figure it out. So that's the nice thing about the work I do as the VO strategist is that every voice talent uh, can benefit from the services that I provide. What is the one thing that you get asked the most? What's the one thing that I get asked the most? If it's uh, someone, how do I get more someone, clients? Yeah, for someone might say, you know, it's been in the industry for 30 plus years. What would be their question? How do I get more clients? And the problem with that question, I mean, yes, it's the question we all ask and the question that we all want to answer is how do we get more clients? But what most people have problems with is why aren't they getting more clients? Most of them just think, well, my marketing isn't good enough. Well, that's only one part of your business. 
You know, maybe your training isn't sufficient in the genre that you're trying to pursue. Maybe the demo that you had produced isn't contemporary enough or up to snuff or has a high enough production quality. Uh, you know, may, maybe your understanding of marketing and who you are as a voice talent and what you can contribute to the voiceover industry doesn't line up. Like I said earlier, most voice talents don't know how to think about what they're supposed to think about. So when they ask that question, they think it's just from one portion of their business, but every portion of their business can influence why they're not getting more clients. So if, if I was to come to you and I, you know, I'm trying to get my business built up and I say to you, where do I start? Where would I start? What I would do, well, what I do is that I always recommend having a diagnostic session with me, which is where I ask you a series of very uncomfortable questions about <laughs> every aspect of your voiceover business. And by the time we get to the end of it, I'm usually able to pinpoint uh, what the problems are in your business model and what you need to do to get yourself to the next level of your voiceover business, whether it's I just want to make more money or whether I want to do more medical narration videos or I want to get into cartoons or, or whatever. But usually it's the same problems, which is we don't know how to get out of our own way. We don't know how to listen to ourselves. We don't know how to listen to the industry. Just by definition, a voice talent is a narcissistic masochist. Yes. I mean, think about it. Hi there. Uh, could you pay me a lot of money so I could hear the sound of my own voice? What? No? Okay. And then you go to the next person and ask the same question over and over again. I mean, what the hell is wrong with us, frankly? Yeah, yeah. Do you think a problem a lot of us have is that we do take no for an answer, though, hearing you say that? I mean, really... The, the way you really get dig down and really get into the, the sort of work that you want to get is by not taking no for an answer, right? It depends. I mean, taking no for an answer is, is a matter of course in our industry because we're going to go on auditions and we're going to fail a lot, but we're not going to fail. See, that's one of the big misconceptions uh, about what we do for a living is that people think that if they got the audition, they're awesome and amazing. And if they didn't get the audition, they're horrible. And that's a lot of uh, bollocks, yes. Bollocks. Um, because the uh, audition process is completely arbitrary and random. There's a great documentary called That Guy Who Was In That Thing. It's a documentary about character actors in Hollywood and their, you know, travails. And you've recognized, you'll recognize every single one of them, but you won't know any of their names. They've been in every movie you've ever seen your entire life. And one of them talks about the absurdity of the casting process. So what I tell my students is that auditions are not an indication of failure or success because you could go to an audition and there's 200 guys that sound just like you and you could be the best actor in the room and you could do the best audition out of everybody, but you don't get the gig because you remind the casting director of her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. And then two weeks later, you go on a different audition and you get the gig because you remind the casting director of her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, right. Uh, there's also another story where uh, uh, someone asked a voice seeker, why did you cast that man for that role? And she said, he reminds me of my father. And that sounds ridiculous, but upon further examination, she said, I trust my father. So she wanted a trusting voice to be the voice of this product or service that she was casting. But what does her father sound like? Yeah. You know, <laughs> so if this is how they think or not think about casting people, how can I take any stock in my, you know, value as a voice talent, depending on the auditions that I go on and the ones that I get or don't get. So when I do an audition, I forget about it immediately because I've got laundry to do and I've got much more important things to spend my time on. So to answer your question, you know, taking no for an answer, well, sure, we're going to go on a lot of auditions and, you know, we're not going to get a lot of parts, most parts. Taking no for an answer as in the body of 
my efforts not turning into results. And you, you can't really say to a client, well, I'm not taking no for an answer. And they'll be like, well, yes, we want this guy because he sounds better or he costs less or he's less of, an, less of a pain in the ass to work with than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can say I'm not taking no for an answer in my mind, in my heart, in my business model, um, because this is a, a very daunting, challenging industry. Uh, there's a th- saying, uh, many are called, few are chosen. I like to say many are called, few make the right choices. Yeah. No, I, I was just thinking um, about the way things work here. It's based on relationships. It is purely, you know, whether you get on with that person at that studio who's the producer. And mm-hmm. uh, if they like you, they like working with you, they will get you in to do the job and they will recommend you to the client. Uh, if they don't like you, you'll never be recommended to that client. Uh, that happens a lot here too. And that's another, that's that's really, like I said, 59% of my work last year came from fellow voice talents referring me to their clients or they got wind of a project and said, oh, hey, you might want to try this out or, hey, they're looking, they have roster spots open. Most employees, which is these aspiring voice talents, don't understand that they're not looking for jobs. They're looking for clients. They're looking for meaningful relationships, which is exactly what you're talking about. I have many clients I've worked with for years that I don't audition for anymore. They just send me the work. I have some agents that I don't audition for on all projects because they'll tell their client, you should work with this person. They listen to the demos. The agent, you know, sells me because that's their job. And they go, okay, great. So I get a gig that doesn't require an audition. Well, obviously that's ideal. A few years ago, I wrote a blog about questions you should ask or not ask a voice talent and stuff like that. And this and this voice talent said, is there some kind of insider click that certain voice talents get gigs based on their demos and not their auditions? And I said, yes. And the conspiracy is massive because people like to work with people that they like, people that they have developed a relationship with. And all relationships are based on communication and trust. So as a voice talent, if you're, a, if you're an effective communicator, both in front of and behind the mic, and you can develop trust with your clients, then if that's a conspiracy, call the FBI. Yeah. Actually, don't do that at the moment. Well, yeah. <laughs> Especially today of all days. Yes, exactly. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, it's funny with, with uh, relationships because about 10 oh, plus years ago, maybe 15 years ago, um, online casting started in the, in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And that changed the dynamic of how a talent would relate to a client because it was all of a sudden the relationship was on the internet. Sure. Uh, and, and being someone who actually owns one of those sites, we're kind of thinking that the the whole online casting process is coming to a grinding halt. It's, it's so stands. funny that you say that um, because I have had a sort of a, I don't want to call it a revelation, but I've made some adjustments in how I think about my voiceover business. Uh, about 10 years ago, I told my New York agents to stop sending me into the city on in-person auditions. Why? Uh, because I felt that the all the time that I was wasting slash, slash spe- spending commuting into New York City, I'm a bus ride away, but sometimes it's a long bus ride depending on the traffic, sitting in the room with all the guys, doing this audition, which is totally arbitrary, and and who knows if I'll get it based on my merit or some random other thing that I have no control over. And then once I book the gig, I'm not even allowed to establish a rapport with the end clients because then I am allegedly undermining my representation. And I wanted no part of that. So I told them, don't send me anymore. And my career improved immediately. 
because I went completely online. I went all digital. I was using some pay to plays. I was using online relationships and casting sites and being on rosters online and things like that. And my career was going great and it's been going great until last year. I had a down year like a lot of us did. And uh, to your point, the blue collar voice talents is which uh, what, what I call us, you know, um, some are union, some are not. You know, we're making a living doing this. We pay our bills, but we're not, you know, millionaires or hundred thousand heirs or whatever you want to call it. Um, we're having a lot of trouble getting work these days. We're having trouble sustaining the work that we have been getting. So I've decided, and we were talking about this before, uh, before we started recording, is that I'm planning on moving into New York City in a few months. I'm going to be focusing on in-person, one client at a time, developing meaningful human interactions with people that are actually in the room with me. Now, I'm lucky because I live outside of New York City, which is one of the biggest voiceover markets in the world, so I have that luxury. So I'm concerned about, I I don't know if you're familiar with the term flyover states Yes, in the United States, which is a real derogatory term. I think it's a real insult to the rest of the country. But um, a lot of the people in the flyover states with everything that's going on in the industry, you know, they're going to have a lot more trouble getting work. Also, there's just so many more voice talents in the industry now. You know, it, it drives me nuts. Nobody thinks that they can just pick up a violin and start playing at a concert level immediately. But every yutz with a deep voice and a USB microphone thinks they can start doing what we do for a living instantly. It's an insult. Yes. Just because you have a pen doesn't make you an author. Just because you have a wrench doesn't make you a plumber, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, every kid with a laptop and garage band thinks they're an audio engineer as well, can I just tell you? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's yeah. the same exact thing. And it's great that there's, you know, the technology is such that a lot of people can ply this trade without having to be in New York or LA or Chicago or I guess Sydney or uh, you know wherever your voiceover in-person hubs are in Australia. Um, so it's great. It's given lots of people opportunities that are worthy of becoming an effective voice talent, but it's also giving exponentially more people that have no business being in this business mucking it up for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was an interesting statistic I heard years ago, which said that in Southern California alone, there were 250,000 supposedly voice talent. Oh, my goodness. I hope that's not true. Yeah, well, that was the figure. Obviously, they're not working. I mean, there's an illusion that if you're auditioning, you're actually in the industry. That's Um, true. That is not (laughs) true. That's not how it works. But no. it's funny you talk about the flyover states because the thing living in Australia, obviously, our population is a lot smaller than America. We're about mm-hmm. 24 million for the whole country. You're, I think, over 300 million now. Um, yes. So these flyover states that you're talking about have, you know, capital cities that are as big as Sydney. Right. Uh, or more Melbourne, you know. So I think Atlanta's got a population of, what, 6 million or five, four, five, six million? Or the greater uh, metropolitan area, I think, something yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's Sydney's population. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure they have a, a pretty healthy industry of their own based on the population. Right. And that being the case, if you're talking about setting up relationships, if I was living in one of those cities in the so-called flyover states, I wouldn't be even bothering to have a crack at getting jobs in New York or LA or Chicago. I'd be out door knocking in Atlanta. Exactly. And one thing that people forget is that there are so many opportunities to have meaningful in-person relationships even if you live in a smaller market, uh, I don't know if you work with Meet have a Meetup as a as a as a service in Australia. Meetup.com. I know Meetup, but no, I don't. Yeah, uh, it's you know basically you can make up any club of any of any subject you can think of, and you know 
get people together and talk and do whatever, whether it's hiking or knitting or voiceovers or whatever. Then they have you have your local chamber of commerce. You have there's organizations called Toastmasters and Le Tip and Rotary Club and Lions Club and all these other Knights of Columbus, all these other, you know, organizations out there that give you an opportunity to get in front of other people. And yes, it's obviously on a smaller scale if it's not New York, LA, or Chicago, but there are still opportunities out there. And the chance of success that you'll have in a meaningful interaction when you're interacting with somebody in person is much better than you would if you do it digitally. Yeah. So if you are working online, what are the best sources that you recommend? Well, just based on my experience is develop relationships with your fellow voice talents. Um, Join online communities. Facebook has many, many uh, voiceover uh, related groups. I mean, the two bigger ones are Voiceover Central and Voiceover Pros. Um, run by Voiceover Pros is run by a couple of friends of mine, um, and it's a great resource for interacting with people, being able to ask good questions about you know things that are going on in the industry, or if you have questions, uh, how much should I quote for this project, or get some tips on you know what kind of microphone you should get. Though I will say that one of the biggest pet peeves in that group is people ask questions that have been asked a billion times before. And there's a little box and a little magnifying glass next to it. Use it. Please use it. So the rest of us who are actually working and have answered this question intelligently and diplomatically in the past, you can just find it and then go, you know, act upon that answer that you found. Facebook is a great, is a great resource for um, finding online communities uh, of voiceover actors. There's also the voiceover bulletin board. Which, is, which was critical to my uh, development as a voice talent. I first joined it in 2006. And that, web, that forum helped me build a home recording studio, the one that I'm sitting in right now, 12 years later. And the community of people is just fantastic. They're so kind and so supportive and so helpful. Um, because we sit here alone in closets and talk to ourselves for hours. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of nice to know that our problems are not just our problems. They're everybody's problems. That's right. also another thing I've learned. When I do these diagnostic sessions with uh, voice talents, I tell them the same thing I tell all of them, which is you are not alone. These problems that you're having, you're not the only one. Everyone is having these problems. And it's okay. You're not alone. Now, changing the subject slightly, but on the same kind of theme, I don't know what Robbo thinks, but what the sound I'm getting out of your, um, your setup is actually really good. Do you agree, Robbo? Yeah, definitely. Sounds great. And I do know what preamp you're using, which actually surprised me how good that sounds. But I'm curious, Mm -hmm. what what is your chain? What mic and what preamp um, are you using? Okay, I'm using a Sennheiser 416. Yep. It's just an amazing microphone on every level. The level of isolation that you can get from it is just wonderful. I mean, I've used this I've used this microphone in hotel closets all over the country. it's fantastic. Uh, it's currently hooked up to a MicPort Pro, which is a fantastic little device. It's about the size of a cigar. When I bought it, it was running at about 150 and I just saw an article just a few days ago that there's a shortage of them, so right now they're running at about $400. Yeah. Uh, they're fantastic. It's, a, it's an amazing preamp. It's what we're on right now. Um, normally, I use a Focusrite Scarlett 2i2 preamp, first generation, but I'm having driver issues, which is why we're not using it uh, today. Um, and the uh, program I use, I use Adobe Audition. And if I could give, I'm not a technophile on any stretch, but if I could give one piece of advice to aspiring voice talents is that you do not need Pro Tools. It is 
way too big and complicated and cumbersome uh, a software for you to get. Adobe Audition works great. Audacity, which is actually free software, works just fine. Um, a lot of people use it as their as their regular recording software. And um, a buddy, Dan Friedman, who's an engineer in North Carolina, he wrote a great book called Sound Advice. He regularly teaches uh, uh, how to use Audacity seminars. So, um, but yeah, that's basically my, that's my whole chain. I don't do anything uh, fancy with my audio either. I hit the red button. I, I, I talk, I hit the red button. I clean up the burps, the boo-boos, the curses, and the big breaths. Yep. I don't process. I don't master. Uh, all I do is just hard limit it to minus three. So they're getting nice, clean audio. And I li- that's literally what I do for all of my clients. They don't require anything beyond that, which is great because my job is to be the performer. I didn't get in this industry to be an, an editor. I got in this industry to be a, a, a voiceover talent. So fortunately, the relationships I have with my clients, that's all I need. You know, and you don't need to do anything crazy with your booth either. I mean, my floor, my noise floor is like minus 55, minus 60. And I don't even have Oralex in here. I have, you know, carpet remnants from Home Depot and some comforters. <laughs> and I've been using this for 12 years. I've had nationally broadcasted spots I've recorded. I mean, I, I recorded three episodes of a reality show on Nat Geo and I recorded it in this closet and it works great. So you don't need to be fancy. You need, the the environment needs to be well well treated and you need a good noise floor and you're good to go. Yeah. Now, we have touched on uh, a couple of things about uh, online casting. Uh, and I should put my hand up and say that, you know, real-time casting is my company. But there are other ones. And, of course, we saw Voices.com last year purchase VoiceBank. What are your thoughts on what happened last year with uh, Voices.com and VoiceBank? <sighs> well, if nothing else, it's a cautionary tale to be uh, for being too dependent on online casting or, or using the internet to ply your trade. Unfortunately, for the f- many of the aforementioned flyover states, for many of them, that's one of the only ways that they can ply their trade as a voice talent by using online casting platforms. Um, I think it was unfortunate. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but when VoiceBank came around, that was vilified because it, it took away the role of the casting director. It yeah. basically is an online casting director, and a lot of people were very up in arms about it. But then things resettled and people started to see the ease and convenience of using uh, VoiceBank. And then uh, Voices.com purchased VoiceBank, which I'm assuming is using some of the money they got from that, um, I guess, I don't know what the word is, grant, that they got it. They got from Morgan Stanley. I think it was like 17 or $18 million they got I, from yeah, Morgan 18 Stanley. Million. $18 million. Yes, thank yeah. you. Um, and um, that also freaked a lot of people out um, because it aligned with their business model of trying to completely dominate every single aspect of the voiceover industry. Their ambition is to have every single voiceover project, union, non-union, agents or no, to go through their casting system. And while that sounds, you know, fine, because, you know, every business out there, I assume, aspires to be the best in their respective industry, there's obviously absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in principle, I don't, you know, have an issue with that if they are comporting themselves ethically. And that's, that's the question. Mm. It is my understanding, I have been reading numerous accounts over the past couple of years of um, practices that are confusing, let's just say, 
for example, somebody posted last year that they saw uh, a casting project posted on Voice123, which is another pay-to-play site, and they saw the same casting notice posted on Voices.com, but the rate that was advertised that they would pay the talent on the Voices.com posting was 90% less. Just this past week, uh, Rick Riley, who's a fellow voice talent, posted a correspondence that he had uh, with two end clients whom originally approached him through Voices.com, and he asked them how much that they were told it would cost them to pay the voice talent versus how much he told Voices.com how much he would get paid for the project and there was a rather large disparity as well. So the concern is, is that while, you know, it's totally fine, uh, some people would say it isn't, that they charge a fee for you to be a member of their site, whatever it is, $300, $400, $500, $1,000, depending on the tiers and stuff, mm-hmm. to have the ability to uh, audition for projects. That in itself is debatable whether you consider that ethical or not. I would say that pay-to-play sites are like, guns, fire, or polka music. It's not what they are. It's what you do with them that makes them an instrument of good or evil. But then it seems like our understanding is that they also get a commission of the project as well, in addition to you paying to get the audition in the first place. Some say it's somewhere around 10 or 20%. And then there have been multiple accounts, like I just illustrated, where they tell the voice seeker that they're going to pay the voice talent a certain amount of money, and it turns out they're paying them a lot less. And unless there is some church or orphanage somewhere that is doing extraordinarily well because of all this extra money that is supposed to be going to the voice talent that's going into some charitable institution, we can only assume that this money is being pocketed by Voices.com and hoping that no one is the wiser. Now, if all of these things, others have alleged, and I'm just sharing it with you, if all of these things are true, then it would be pretty clear to me that Voices.com is doing pretty considerable damage to the voiceover industry and are hurting the voice talents, the voice seekers, the union, and the agents. So based on what's been going on lately, and I know that the owners of Voices.com have been... uh doing a few tours around New York and L.A. Yes, I've heard uh, that as well. Yep. And, they've been and this isn't their first tours, by the way. I've heard they've been doing other tours at production companies, and now they're doing a no, more recent tour with the agents. Correct. And they've also mm-hmm. had dialogue with um, the Screen Actors Guild slash mm-hmm. AFTRA. Yes. Um, what do you think, in your opinion, the union should be doing about what's happening? Anything. when I say that I mean they've done absolutely nothing Um, there should be dialogues with union actors with non-union actors with the production companies with the recording studios with everybody but they from my understanding they're not really talking they are listening as in their ears are attached to their heads when people are saying things to them about this subject. Um, But whether anything has um, turned into action, uh, as far as I know, nothing's really been done. What should the unions do? Well, they shouldn't be letting this sort of thing going on, wouldn't you say? (laughs) So based on what they are not doing, uh, what do you see the future of SAG-AFTRA as far as the blue-collar voice talent are concerned? I think it's safe to say that the union doesn't give a rat's nose about blue-collar voice talent. 
from my understanding and my perception, they care about the big actors that are bringing in the big bucks, the big movie stars. That's where all the real money is coming from. I mean, I'm sure the aggregate of what blue-collar voice towns are contributing to the unions are, I'm sure, helping their dues. You know, I'm sure it's helping their revenues. But when it comes to genuinely protecting the interest of union talent in this particular context, I don't know how much they care because I don't know how much it really affects their bottom line. Well, going back, if you wind the clock back to the uh, the beginning of online casting, it basically came out of the writer's strike back in 2001, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when the writers went on strike, um, the support from the voiceover industry was given and they went on strike. So the union voiceover talent went on strike for six months in that period, the non-union side of the industry took off and uh, basically right. was propelled by the online casting sites. Yes. Uh, based on that, and you've got people like George Clooney, Morgan Freeman, and various other actors who are making sizable money out of doing voiceovers, would you feel that it would be fair if they reciprocated by supporting the blue-collar voiceover industry? I think it would be fair, but I think it's safe to say that none of them have any idea that this is going on. I'm sure it's not on any of their radar. Remember I said we're all a narcissistic, masochistic lot? So yep. uh, I'm pretty sure they have no idea what's going on. Now, I can't speak for any of them individually because, I mean, I could make a sweeping statement and say, and I'm sure none of them really give a crap either. I'm, I'm sure they may in, in the abstract because they're actors, we're actors. They were struggling at some point in their lives to get to where they are now and they'd like to give all of us every opportunity to be as successful as they are. I would like to think that that's, um, that's the case. The, the, thing that, the thing about it is that Morgan Freeman or George Clooney, they're not voice actors. They're celebrities who endorse products with their voice. It's a, they're, they're in a completely different uh, area. I mean, because there are no famous voice talents out there. I mean, I mean, if you walk down the street and said to a stranger, excuse me, do you know who Joe Cipriano is? They will have no idea. And Joe Cipriano is a wonderful guy and a very successful voice actor, one of the most successful pure voice actors there are out there, but nobody knows who he is. Yeah. Or Bob Bergen, who, who has been a strong advocate of you know railing against the pay-to-play system and Voices.com in particular. If you go on Facebook, you'll see many of his stances, which you know I highly respect. Yeah. But I nobody knows who he reason. is either, yeah. really. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, I mean, I would love it if a George Clooney or a Kiefer Sutherland or a uh, Allison Janney or a uh, Morgan Freeman got involved in this uh, process. I mean, I'm not honestly sure how much influence they would have on this because the only time that any industry on any level, whether it's a, a college in Michigan or an Olympic committee or um, or a, a major producer of whatever, the only time they'll get off their fat asses is when the things that are going on online in the internet and in the news start affecting their wallets. That's the only time that any of them will care. Yeah. So what do you think the future of SAG-AFTRA is? Do you think um, it will still be around for voice talent like you and I? I don't think it's going to change much with the blue collar uh, voice talent. We're going to just keep keep on keeping on and continue to hold back the ocean with a broom that is the onslaught of new voice talents that are arriving on the scene every single day and messing it up for those of us who are using this to pay our bills. Yeah, yeah. But do mm-hmm. you do you see that the average full-time voice talent still being aligned with the union? That <sighs> And I, I've been saying this for years, is that every successful voice talent I know um, has 
many aspects of the voiceover industry as part of a balanced breakfast. If you are a union voice talent, a blue-collar union voice talent, there is non-union work that they can do that is not under contract by SAG-AFTRA that they can go through a paymaster service and um, have it garnished appropriately so they are doing legitimate they're doing legitimate work and they're comporting themselves ethically because they're making sure that all the voiceover work that they are doing um, is uh, getting garnished properly. So they can get all the work that they can get their hands on, but they also are still being uh, true to their, to their ethics. The smart ones, the talented ones, the savvy ones, the ones with self-discipline, business acumen, and awareness of what's going on in the industry are going to do just fine. The people that have the wrong mentality will you know, go back to working at Denny's or Bob's Big Boy or wherever. Yeah, yeah. But the other important ingredient that Australians don't or are not aware of is that the part of being uh, of the part of the union is that you get pension and health, which we take for granted because we get that anyway. Right. Um, so if you're not a union talent, you've got no health cover and you've got no pension. Well, there are mechanisms to take care of those things. And that's also some of the things that I teach in some of my seminars is that, um, you know, I, for one, am an, I'm not a union voice talent. I'm a union eligible voice talent and I do some union work and I do mostly non-union work. I get my own insurance. I have an insurance agent that helps get me my auto insurance, my renter's insurance. I have another agent to help me get my health insurance. I use the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, uh, to uh, subsidize the insurance premiums that I pay since I don't have an employer who is you know, helping me get a discount on insurance. I have my own retirement plans. I, uh, there are, I have multiple retirement plans that I, you know, garnish my, my own wages and put in there. I also have, uh, what's called a health insurance account, which is a relatively new phenomenon in the United States, where you basically have an account that where you can put pre-tax money into it. And that's what you can use for your medical expenses. So there are mechanisms in place, uh, for people to be able to, you know, uh, live, um, and, not while not being in the union or being a nine to five employee. It's just a matter of knowing what they are. And, you know, like I said, having the acumen and knowing what's going on and making good, thoughtful decisions for with your long-term interests in mind. That's the thing. Employees, the way that employees think and get and pay, get paid and get taxed and pay are different the way than businesses do. And individual voice talents are businesses. So we can't think like an employee. We don't get paid like an employee. We don't pay our taxes like our an employee. And we have to get all of these services on the, on our own. But they are out there. And the, the smart, independent voice talents are doing, you know, just fine. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been illuminating, to say the least. Indeed. Oh. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fascinating. The industry is certainly in... Uh, a state of change in America, that's for sure, which, of course, ultimately will um, be reflected down here. But one question, the last question I'm going to ask you is the role of the agent. How do you see that looking in, say, the next five or ten years? I think agents need to uh, watch their back, um, especially with things that are going on right now. They've been getting squeezed for a long time because there are, you know... There are some non-union gigs that go through agents, but it's mostly union gigs that go through agents. It's more and more than there used to be. But um, agents are getting, uh, it, they're getting kind of left out of the equation on a lot of levels. Uh, the good news is that there is a collection of agents who have decided that they've had enough with this pay-to-play nonsense, and they formed the VO Agent Alliance. 
And you can find them on voagentalliance.com. Actually, two of my agents are members of that organization. There's about a dozen or so agents that are there. And they all agree to not participate in the pay-to-play business model. And they guarantee that they have high-quality voice talents who deserve to get paid rates that are commensurate with the industry standard. And not all agents are eligible to be a part of them because they are still, for lack of a better term, consorting with uh, pay-to-play entities, which as a whole they believe are you know, unethical or unprincipled. So, um, I mean, like I said, only 2% of my work is, is, comes from agents, but I've learned, like I said, to have meaningful relationships with my colleagues, which are supposed to be supposed to be my competition, but I truly believe there is no competition in the voiceover industry because our industry is not vertical. It's not this climbing to the top. It's spherical where you expand your relationships and learn and get to know more people and, you know, not be a jerk. And if you're not a jerk, you can, you know, you can get some work done. So yeah, um, I, the agents have to learn to adapt and I wouldn't be a surprise if some of them go out of business on the other end of all this. I'm inclined to agree. And mm-hmm. on that note, uh, we should wind up. Um, thank you, Tom Deere. Your company is vostrategist.com, I believe. Yes. Sounds great. Um, if you want more advice, don't forget get in contact with Tom. Thanks for being on the show, Tom. Cheers. Oh, this was wonderful. Thanks for having me. And that was Tom Deere. Um, before we got to Tom, there was um, a, something I threw in the wrong spot, actually. We were talking about something completely different. But it was about the, the microphone placement in the booth. So if I'm sitting here right now, the distance between the the actual front of the microphone and the wall behind me, as opposed to the distance between the back of the microphone and the wall in front of me, where should I be sitting uh, between those walls? Is it better to have the back of the wall behind me closer or further away? I would would go for a third towards the... uh you know, just to give you personal space as well, but maybe a third away from the back of the mic and then two-thirds of the distance gives you from the wall that's uh, between you and the front of the mic. And one of the things you have to keep in mind, um, the bigger your head, the better, but, you know, you are also an acoustic shield as well. Um, And, you know, you keep your mic pattern in mind as well. So you have a 416 and you you have to be aware that you've got a little node in the back because it's a shotgun mic, so it's, it's very insensitive to the sides, um, but it does have a little slightly sensitive note in the back, and that goes away more as you approach more of a cardioid pattern. Um, but, you know, you kind of play the, the idea that the mic is relatively ins- insensitive to the back of it, so you can get a little bit closer to that and therefore use that distance from the front of the mic to the wall that's behind you. Yep, and I agree. Now George disagrees. No, <laughs> George disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree, but I do agree. Uh, but uh, also, you know, that the wall that's behind the mic should have the most aggressive absorption mm-hmm. on it. So if you only have two-inch panels on the other walls, uh, then you should have a, at least a four-inch panel probably on the wall behind the mic because the back right. of the mic is the most sensitive at low and mid-frequency, um, especially low. Because low cardioid and any of these mics are not directional at the low end. So when you get it up close to a wall, it's going to build up low end pretty fast. So you need an extra amount of absorption on that wall to control that. So I, when I do a small room, like a whisper room, I, I, if they have the room, I always put one very large bass trap in a corner somewhere. And if possible, and if they don't, then I'll at least put one four inch thick 
bass trap broadband panel, just a flat one against the wall behind where the mic is. It's the least obstructive to the voice actor in terms of, you know, being able to move around the room. It takes up the least amount of space and you get the most effectiveness out of it that way. But yeah, and you can also try to play the diagonal distance, which gives you a little bit more distance from the from the back wall. You know, like if you can orient yourself diagonally, you kind of get a nice shot to the window slightly from the side and you can build a little bit more distance because you give the diagonal length instead of just the square length yeah and then and then in bigger rooms i like to actually flip it around so the back the the voice talent is their back is to the corner and Mm -hmm. so you create a really i call it a dead corner so you make the deadest corner you can put your back to that super dead corner and then you point the mic into that dead corner and then you're speaking out into the room and the room might be slightly lively but you know hopefully you've got bookshelves and things like that, scattering the sound about a bit. And then the back of the mic's less sensitive, so it doesn't hear the scattered sound as much. Um, and it creates a pretty pretty nice overall sound, I found, when when, when done that way. Now, body yeah. fat would be pretty dense, I would imagine. So <laughs> yeah. the fatter you are, people, the less uh, absorption you need in your body. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was kind of thinking of making a sandwich board of, like, you know, 703, some Owens Corning. You can maybe, you know... That you wear... Like your, yeah, you wear, yeah. <laughs> you you become the be the baffle. Don't be the ball, be the baffle. <laughs> okay. I think you're low on blood sugar, uh, Robert. Time for dinner. Yeah. 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 I think it could be like a you know, a superhero suit that's sort of got the kind of wings sticking out over the back. But the whole the thing is made out of suit. absorption. And then you become the booth. Oh, Andrew. That's right. Andrew, Andrew, <laughs> the, Andrew. The scuba booth. <laughs> yeah. I like it. That's great. That's great. Okay. Goldman Sachs. Let's put it to them. We might get some cash. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. If if they only gave $18 million to Voices.com, there's still something like $2,900,000,000 yeah, to go. Yeah, that's right. Right? Exactly. We don't need that much, do we? Then no. again, we may. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, on that bombshell, I think uh, we should get out of here. <laughs> I think you should definitely get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> the bat phone's ringing. See you guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. I'll be tickled to death to go. Don't cry. Don't sigh. There's a silver lining in the sky. Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin-chin, na-poo, toodaloo, goodbye.